I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I talk with writer Chavisa Woods about her new book, 100 Times, A Memoir of Sexism. In Chavisa Woods' new book, 100 Times, A Memoir of Sexism, in each chapter, she outlines the arc of her life using these little vignettes, these short chapters in which she explores experiences in her life starting in grade school and goes all the way up to adulthood. And she outlines experiences of everyday sexism, sexism at work or in the literary scene. And she even talks about some more disturbing experiences, like with sexual assault. And the interesting thing about the way the book is written is that Chavisa Woods doesn't guide the reader into a specific direction by telling them what conclusion they should come to about her experiences or what they should glean from each chapter. Instead, she shares them with a lot of vulnerability. And I found the results really moving. In our conversation, I talk about how reading her accounts of sexism made me re-examine a lot of my own experiences, not just with sexism or sexual harassment, but also with racism. But I do want to warn the listeners that our conversation does explore themes like sexual assault, also abuse. So please be forewarned and take caution when listening. Some of these accounts, while we don't go into an explicit retelling of them, they may be upsetting to some listeners. But I found both reading the memoir and this conversation with Chavisa Woods cathartic. And I was reminded of just how much emotional vulnerability and how much emotional labor is often necessary in order to change our culture of sexism, to be heard and to hopefully help other people. So here is my conversation with Chavisa Woods. Chavisa Woods, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So in your book, A Hundred Times, A Memoir of Sexism, you pulled together this collection of personal experiences, these little vignettes that you've had with men and boys, you know, over the years. And, you know, starting from a really, really young age, there were some accounts, some actually really brutal accounts, actually, from when you were in primary school, some assaults from boys. And, you know, we all kind of have these stories. But when did you begin to understand that there was a link to all of these events, that there was some gender element to this behavior? I actually began to understand it when I was in grade school, as most people probably did on some level. For whatever reason, by the time I was in junior high or a freshman in high school, it made me very angry. And other, a lot of other girls around me just seemed to accept the fact that girls were being treated very differently than the boys. Some things we were more angry about than others, or the majority of girls were more angry about than others. For instance, I wrote about this policy that's actually still upheld in a lot of schools, which is um, having a different gender dress code for the girls than the boys. And when I was in high school and junior high, girls weren't allowed to even wear tank tops or just shirts with their shoulders. And boys often wore jerseys with nothing underneath them so baggy that you could actually see their bare chests and their nipples. And the girls were pretty angry about that even in the 90s in high school and would say this is just a starkly vast contrast in our treatment. Why are they allowed to walk around with their bare chests exposed? And if I have a slightly low cut shirt on or a slightly short skirt or just my shoulders bare in the summer, I get sent to the principal's office or get asked to put on a jacket. 
Yeah. I mean, I guess what I mean was when I was reading those stories, like, you know, some of the ones that you had when you were five or six or seven, you know, I had some similar incidents where, you know, a boy was bullying me or teasing me. And, you know, I wanted to fight back and, you know, he was kind of relentless and wouldn't leave me alone. But then also there were some girls who were teasing and bullying me. And when I think about my collection of sexism or harassments, you know, over the years over my life, I tend to think about later years. Right. And I didn't myself put those experiences in the collection of experiences of sexism. But I think reading those accounts of yours, it seems like there is really a pattern between boys and girls at a really young age that sometimes we don't include in our collection of stories. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. As I wrote in the first chapter that when I was playing in the sprinklers with a boy, he started pinching my butt and saying sexual things to me. I was five years old. He was six or seven. And he was pinching my butt so hard that it hurt. It also was making me feel uncomfortable in a new way that I hadn't been made to feel uncomfortable for, which was a sexual way. And in my experience previously, if I hit someone or if I took someone's toy, I got in trouble. And if a boy or a girl hit me, and like took my toy or called me names, they got in trouble. But in this instance, when I went in and told the adults, he's pinching my butt, he won't stop. I don't like it. It hurts. The adults started laughing. And I remember feeling very confused in that moment and learning, you know, my little child mind learning in the way that I could, that if a boy was hurting me in a way that was sexual or had some sexual overtone, that he wouldn't get in trouble, which was very different than all the other ways that it was dealt with if we were if kids were hurting each other or picking on each other without that element. Right. That makes total sense. Yeah. So, you know, another really interesting story from your grade school years in the book is one that you recall with your PE teacher. And this one's really, really interesting. I think it, you said you were in second grade. And you were wearing a top or something that kind of slipped down. And, you know, I remember myself being a second grade girl, you know, seven or eight years old. And what this teacher did was just, you know, kind of unfathomable to me or what he said, actually. And he teased you in a sexual way, which made you feel really ashamed and uncomfortable. But you make a point in that story to call out the fact that, you know, he wasn't necessarily a predator. He wasn't a a pedophile, but he was still a part of this culture, this culture that kind of you know, sees women and girls in in one way that's problematic. What I think is really important about that is that when we have conversations around this, they seem to to quickly devolve into different corners. Either a person is a predator or they're not a predator. And any nuance in between is kind of discounted and not talked about. And I think that that is one of the things that kind of perpetuates this culture. Absolutely. In um, my book, 100 Times a Memoir of Sexism, I want to point out that I don't name any men, first of all, and I do this because I think all men have been socialized to take part in sexist behaviors and in sexist culture, and it doesn't necessarily make you a monster if you have done that. It just makes you a man in this society. And the incident you're talking about, I was actually six years old, and it was the second grade, like you said, and at this point, I had had no breasts. My chest was completely flat. I hadn't begun developing in any way sexually. And in grade school, I know I said that we weren't allowed to wear tank tops in high school. In grade school, school, everyone was allowed to wear tank tops. It wasn't an issue. And I was in PE and my shirt had just sort of slightly, you know, you're a skinny little kid, even tight things on your kind of baggy had just slightly gone askew. And I was sitting in a row of children on the ground. And all of a sudden, my teacher leaned down to me and stared at my chest and smiled and said, hubba hubba, I can see it, baby. Hubba hubba. And then he's pointed at my shirt and he's like, you better fix that. And then everyone started laughing. And I looked down and I saw my nipple sticking out. Oh my and he God. like made this little, you know, he had made a goofy voice. 
and I, and hubba hubba, I can see it, baby. And I was like, okay, I think in retrospect, he was trying to make light of this situation because he felt uncomfortable telling a girl her nipple was showing, (laughs) you know, and sometimes the things that we do when we're uncomfortable are actually quite inappropriate. Yeah. But what happened was everyone looked at me and laughed and I felt kind of naked. I was like, you know, naked in a way I never had before, exposed in a way I knew had before in front of all of the other kids. It was a very brief moment. And I think all the other kids quickly got over it after a few minutes, but they spent a few minutes laughing at me and probably all of us thinking about, oh, girls have breasts suddenly for the first time. And it the focus was my body. And yeah, it's a highly inappropriate thing for a teacher to do. And it was his first thought of what to do when he sees a six-year-old's nipple out, which isn't that big of a deal to begin or end with. Right. I mean, as a, you know, a six-year-old, there really is no need to correct that, right? There's just no need to correct that and say anything about your top, right? Yeah. No, there's no need to, there's no need to correct it really. I mean, he could have just, he could have walked over to me and just been like, oh, your shirt's down a little, like that would have been fine. But the hubba hubba, oh yeah, I can see it, baby, was really bizarre. Also implying that maybe I was like showing it something to him. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing that that I that I'm trying to to point out is that the fact that we cannot discuss or we haven't been able to successfully discuss situations like this without either labeling the person a predator or not a predator or a horrible person or not a horrible uh, person is is the problem, right? Because we can't right. fix the culture if we can't cleanly define someone. Exactly. And I I think that that's a horrible way to go about um, writing a social wrong or changing a social structure or a systemic bias. I don't think this man was evil. I don't think he should have been fired from his job. Um, I just think that we need to start looking at our behaviors and becoming more aware of them. And I wrote this book to take the focus off of men, actually, and put the focus on the cumulative impact that their behavior has on women. I think if we take it off of only villainizing men or saying like, if you've done something wrong, you're canceled and start getting, asking men to empathize with our experience and look at the cumulative impact that this has on us, that there will be no question that this is intolerable to live in this society as a woman with the level of sexism that we experience continuously in our lives. And maybe that will actually cause some change in these behaviors and some awareness of the unconscious bias that they're functioning with. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I recently realized or begun to realize when I became a parent is, you know, how young this messaging starts, right? When I became a parent, I started watching, you know, cartoons where, and shows that are meant for children where they regularly pit girls against boys. Mm -hmm. There's this reality show where they have a team of girls and a team of boys, and they're supposed to survive in the wilderness and they pit them against each other. Right. And you know, that's problematic. Mm -hmm obviously, for obvious reasons, but it's also not going to work long term for the simple fact that we can no longer operate, assuming that everything is gender binary, right? So that's going to be problematic. Or assuming that the gender binary is like a natural innate occurrence and not a social construct. Right, exactly. Right. And you recall a story in your book where you had a friend as a young girl, a a friend who was a boy, and you felt that things started to shift, right? Like things were more comfortable when you were younger. And this is pretty common. Like, you know, as you approach preteen years or teenage years, things begin to shift. What, What happened in that relationship for you? Well, it was really startling to me. So I believe you're talking about my neighbor. And in the book, I believe I refer to him as Michael. Yes. I'm not using his real name, actually. Um, He was a very good friend of mine since I was a toddler. And when we were six, seven, eight, 
nine, we would play together. And I was, you know, I could be really femmy or I could be a tomboy. I had Barbie dolls, but I also liked shooting guns with boys and bows and arrows. We would bury treasure and dig it up. We would play softball. And when I was young, even another boy was just continually coming around and asking me to date him and asking me to kiss him and asking me to like show him mine and he'll show me his. And I found this very annoying (laughs) when we were younger, Mike, my neighbor, actually stuck up for me and told him that he was ruining everything and that we were friends and we were, we'd always had fun before this started. And that made me feel really aligned with him and respected by him. And like we were friends on an equal level. But then when he hit, I believe like 13 and I was 11 years old, he started tormenting me if other boys were around and if other girls were around, if we weren't alone, he would show off by holding me underwater in the pool or pinching me or smacking me or teasing me. And this chapter takes part at when that, all of that began. And it was, I was 11 years old and he was 13 and he had a neighbor at his house who had a pellet gun that looked like a machine gun. And it was actually a gun that you could kill a small animal with, but you couldn't kill a person unless you maybe shot them at close range in the eye. And I was walking over to his house like I did often to play. And the boy just said, no girls allowed, you know, and I'm sure you've heard that many times before. But that actually feels really bad when you're a girl just walking over to play with one of your best friends. Suddenly you're not allowed in the space because of your gender. And he said, if you take one more step, I'm going to shoot you. He stood on my friend's porch and pointed the gun at me. And I defiantly literally just put my foot forward as if taking one more step. And he shot me in the foot. Um, wow wow yeah yeah <laughs> it's not funny but it's kind of like it's shocking right I mean because you have you have several stories in the book kind of like that but geez yeah so he shoots me in the foot I'm an 11 year old girl it goes through my shoe I was bleeding and I you know I fell down on the ground and started crying um part of that was emotional hurt and her ego and part of it was it stung it wasn't the most horrible pain I'd ever felt but it it wasn't pleasant it it hurt and a couple days later my neighbor came over Mike and my friend and he was very angry with me and apparently this boy had been severely punished by his father and that's also a punishment that I found very dark and unnecessary his father had beaten him up pretty badly. Um, the story that I heard was he, it was a really hot summer day and he had like held him down on a metal table and the boy still had like grill marks of the table burned into his back. Oh my God. Um, wow. Yes. Then he was in turn abused for abusing someone, which doesn't solve anything. And my neighbor was telling me about this and saying that I shouldn't have cried as much as I did and blaming me for this boy's father beating him. And I said, you know, that's crazy. His dad's crazy. That shouldn't have happened, but it's not my fault. He did that. Like, I'm not going to be blamed for a man beating his son because his son shot me. That's not my fault. Um, And even as a kid, I knew that. But when I said this, my friend smacked me in the face. Well, pretty hard. And it was, it sort of was like, I've seen in movies, you know, this sort of moment of like the husband correcting the wife, just smacking her in the face. And that time I didn't cry. I just sort of my, hit me so hard that my head turned. I remember, and I looked down and I just, it was a whole new layer had come between us and it shaped our friendship. And I just got up and silently walked in the house. 
And I always will remember that moment and things were never the same between us again. And that was the first time it really felt like, okay, you're a man and I'm a woman, even though we're kids. And this is what this means. Right. So even then you kind of understood the gender element of it, right? Because I think, how old were you then? I was 11 and he was 13. Yeah, because I'm trying to think of my first memory when I thought of when I felt that something had a gender element, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was very, very aware of this different gender thing from a very young age. And, you know, people have asked me, like, why that is, why I was more aware than other people. I'm not sure. Some people are just more sensitive to some things than others. Um, I was also being raised part time between two different classes because of custody was split two ways. And I was also very aware of class from a very young age because of how differently I got treated when I appeared to be in a different class one week than I was the next week. So maybe that had something to do with it. Then I also started knowing, oh, this gender thing also causes me to be treated differently than other people. But uh, I think I was aware of it by then. Right. I mean, I'm just calling, you know, recalling my anecdotal experience. I mean, maybe I was the one who, <laughs> you know, recognized there was a gender element to this later than most people. Right. On um, what age were you when you realized it? Oh, geez. You know, it's, it's not that I realized it. It wasn't like a hard moment that I said, you know, right. oh, you know, these these behaviors are gendered. But when I think about my entire life, the arc of all of the experiences I've had, you know, with sexism and sexual harassment and all the other experiences, I, I start to think of the beginning maybe in high school or college, you know, when women when were clearly entering that, that uh-huh. realm of like, you know, sexuality, you know, and I'm sure that if I had thought further back, I probably could have categorized some of the earlier experiences as gendered behavior or gendered experiences. But yeah, that's an interesting point you bring up because I was aware of it. And I think most girls at very young ages are aware of it, but we don't necessarily name it very clearly as such until we're older. Right, right. No, you're right. And naming it is a different process. And this book has also been a process for me to name it in a way that I never have been able to before. Because it is this sort of slow burn. And every time that it happens, it builds upon the last time and it becomes more obvious to you that this is happening. And at the same time, the whole world is telling you this isn't happening. You're not being treated that differently because you're a girl or we're just treating you how we're supposed to because you're a girl. Right, 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 right. Yeah. You know, another theme, and you kind of alluded to this just now, the adult's role in this and how, you know, it's often either dismissed or diminished. So when did you start to either trust adults with these accounts or not trust adults? Or when did you start to understand that perhaps they weren't there to help you and that, you know, these instances would be dismissed or diminished? I don't know if I ever understood that concretely, but there were a lot of little points that are also in this book where it became obvious to me that they were, even women who I really cared about were influenced by this socialization, functioning under some deep unconscious or perhaps conscious bias. Um, and had some internalized sexism. I think when I was 14, um, a man in his 30s who was a lighting technician in the community theater where I did children's plays attempted to rape me and attacked me. Um, and we, I, and it turned out that he had sexually assaulted other girls. And we, after several several months after this happened, we went to a teacher who I trusted and who I looked up to and who I still love like and look up to more than almost any other teacher, maybe any other teacher I've ever had. I really loved her and I felt very close to her and I think she loved me too. We went to her and told her what had happened and her first response, and perhaps I'm reading it that wrong, but how I read it 
at the moment was that she didn't want us to be saying this. And she just said, are you sure all this is true? These are very serious accusations. This is going to cause a lot of trouble. And she just seemed very upset, but not upset that a 14 year old girl was almost raped by a man who attacked her, who was supposed to be teaching her and that several other girls had been sexually assaulted and that we were terrified of him, but upset that we were saying anything. And the implication was that we were, that we might be exaggerating. And then she was cold to me after that. She, she did go to the authorities and say it will be taken care of. The authorities within the school, not the police, unfortunately. And a few months after that, she, she treated me differently. And a few months after I told her this, she was just asking for volunteers to go up into this attic and get a table down. And I, I was always, you know, a helper. And I raised my hand. And she pulled me aside and sent another boy to go. And she said to me, do you really want to go up there in an attic and alone with that boy to get a table? Do you want to get yourself in trouble again? Oh my God. And that hurt because I respected her so much and I wanted her respect. And I took that as meaning she didn't trust me. And I also just, you know, my head was spinning. I was 14 and this was an adult I really looked up to and someone that I trusted to protect me. And I thought, Oh, if I'm alone with a male and they do something to me again, now it's definitely my fault because it's happened before. I see. And I also thought at that moment, man, I have been in a room alone with almost every man I know at some point and they never tried to rape me. So there was no problem. I never complained about them. I hadn't made up the fact that this man grabbed me and held me down and tried to rape me. And the implication then was that I couldn't be trusted alone in a room with any man ever again. And that was um, coming from a woman. And that was pretty disturbing and hurtful. Yeah, that must have been really heartbreaking. I mean, I know that, geez, I know that young girls were dealing with this all the time, all over the country, all over the world. But I mean, just to hear it, it's probably one of the most heartbreaking and confusing moments that a, that a young girl can, can go through when they go to a, another woman someone that they feel that they can trust, who they assume, you know, may have had experiences similar to that. And they're, you know, not believed and, and even blamed. And yeah. And then to have this teacher tell me, do you want to get yourself in trouble again? The way she, you know, she might not have meant it literally, that's a phrase, but what it implies is that it is my fault. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm so sorry that happened to you. things that's confusing for a lot of us is when we try to put these experiences in the right context by trying to gauge the reaction of other women right uh -huh. and I think when reading your stories and listening to this account that you know obviously that isn't always reliable right to use the reaction of other women 
And I'm thinking of another story where you were talking about when you were older, I think you were in your early 20s and you were a a poet, right? And you were a writer and you were going to these events. And there was a, a man who I believe was also a writer who would go around and ask women to take photos of them, to lift their shirts and take photos of their breasts. And this made you really uncomfortable as it should have, right? And the thing that you said was confusing for you is that Other writers, other women who were, you know, who you respected, didn't seem to have a problem with him. This is a very complicated chapter to talk about because it was, it's a very complicated milieu that I was hanging out in. And I think that's also true for a lot of people who hang out in sort of non-traditional artist, bohemian, punky spaces. Um, there, we, we want to have different boundaries and we create spaces that have very different boundaries than mainstream spaces. And I like that, you know, there's more nudity, there's more sexual innuendo in the performance art that's happening on the stage. So this was a group of poets and artists who were hanging around like the Bowery Poetry Club and the New Yorican, the Gathering of the Tribes, you know, in the early 2000s in New York City. And the vibe was pretty wild. And I really liked that. But there was a man who came to all of these events who was another eccentric and we're all very eccentric. So that makes it hard in some ways to talk about like where the line is because we were intentionally trying to blur a lot of lines about like sexuality, political appropriateness and inappropriateness and gender. But in this story, I do talk about the fact that he in the end did cross a very obvious line that is set even in these non-traditional spaces, it did really bother me. And it bothered a few other women and the women who said anything were kind of told, Oh, well, like you're not hip. And we kind of went along with it, I think, but I think it bothered a lot more women than said anything. He had a book. So he's a man who would be in this weird art spaces and it's his performance art open mic series. And he had a book that was just pictures of women with their shirts up flashing him that he took with like Polaroid camera. And then he'd slip these pictures like um, trophies into this photo album, into these giant folder albums he actually carried with him to these like performance art and poetry readings. And I was 21 and I was like, I'm going to this famous literary establishment and trying to take part in this interesting culture. And the first, one of the first people who spoke to me was this older man asking me to lift up my shirt and flash him so he could take a picture of my breasts. And that to me actually felt not that hip and not that cool, but sort of like what I would expect from like spring break in Florida. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. I was like, I think that you've taken this sort of sexual revolution idea and this is just you being a creepy dude and sexualizing women and treating our bodies like they're pelts. Um, It wasn't interesting to me and I didn't like it. So that, that was, I thought highly inappropriate and also something that was, accepted and encouraged because when you start to blur the lines, a lot of times it just sexism seeps in even to non-traditional cultural milieus. Right. He probably took advantage of that culture as well. Absolutely. Um, So there's a chapter where you talk about this prominent black writer and you were talking about, I think, sexual assault. And he made a comment about, let me see if I can find the exact quote. I can tell you because it's stuck in my mind. Yeah, please. I really, really respect him and think he's an amazing, a brilliant political thinker and political writer. And he was analyzing the film Precious and how it's like supporting like Reaganistic politics. And I agreed with a lot of that. And he was talking about the fact that 
Um, the in the movie, at least, the lighter skinned the people are, the better and kinder they are. Um, the lighter skinned black people and the darker skinned black people were more evil, except for the main character. And you know, I was in this salon style art gallery, and we were sitting and having a really interesting conversation. And I was sitting and listening to like two older black men, an older white man, and then there was like a white male intern there, um, having just this really interesting analysis. And these are artists I really respect and admire and look up to. So I was just sort of listening and like taking it in. And then he said that he didn't believe that the character in the film Precious could have been raped by her father because she was, he first said too fat. And he said, you can't, you know, a girl that big couldn't be raped. And I, you know, then I was like, whoa, <laughs> I was also younger. I was in my twenties and you know, he's a lot older and I, and, yeah. more and famous and I respect him. And I, I just, I, I, I pushed back on that and I was like, well, I, I don't think that's true. What do you mean? And then he's like, let me correct myself. And he said, you can't rape her also because she's black. And he said, you can't rape a black woman. They'll fight you. Not like white women. Hmm. <laughs> well, yeah. And then <sighs> I, what happened for me was like everything stopped and I got stuck on that statement. And what happened for the four men in the room was that the conversation just continued and they just kept talking. And I was sitting there thinking, like, how do I respectfully, and also this is very racially complicated, um, and what's happening in the room right now is racially complicated if I say something. How do I pick my words to say what I mean very clearly, and should I? So I did finally stop the conversation. I was like, I have a problem with what you said. And he was like, what? What did I say? Like, you know, my thinking about this took so long, the conversation was so far along that they didn't even remember this statement because it didn't hit them the same way. And I'm glad that I took my time to speak. And I just said, I think you've, you know, done something that's rare and difficult, but you've equally insulted black women and white women in the same sentence. The implication is what if a black woman is raped, she wasn't really raped because she could fight back and she wasn't. It's also a racist implication. The implication is white women don't fight. Why? It was just, it was a, it was a pretty disgusting statement. Um, yeah, it's a hot mess. <laughs> it's a it's hot, a mess, hot mess. mess. I mean, yeah, the implication that that fighting is somehow an effective deterrent for anyone, any any rape victim, right? That's one problem, right? And then the racial element that, you know, this whole thing about like black women are so strong that they, they can't be sexually assaulted. I mean, this is just layers and layers of absurdity in that one sentence. And the, you know, the part of the point of the story was how I was talked to after I was, he was like, oh, well, I'm always insulting my wife and my daughter too. Ha ha ha. And then the conversation just moved forward. And it, when I pushed it again, like I was just sort of treated like I was being melodramatic. Yeah. You, you know, I think you alluded to this, but did you hesitate because you aren't black? Do you know what I mean? Because he's a prominent commenter and writer on social justice issues and race issues. Did you did you hesitate to say anything? Oh, of course I did. I mean, you know. Yeah, I didn't want, I also want him to respect me and I wanted to check myself and make sure like, is, is my like reaction to this some racist in some way or me being like, oh no, like I don't want you to say that about white women. And then I was like, no, this is a disgusting statement about everyone involved and I'm going to say something. Yeah. I mean, I also hesitated because he is just an intellectual powerhouse and the thought of arguing with a man of that prowess and much older than me and who I'm sure can run circles around me in debate is, 
or especially when I was 20 could, was daunting, to say the least. Yeah, well, that's complicated. Mm -hmm. There's a moment in the book where you recall where you started to to assault men, right? And I really want to talk about that because I, I, I just kept, you know, thinking and I was kind of torn about asking about that. And I was like, well, she wrote about it. So she obviously wants to share it and, and talk about it and have people discuss it. And I thought, geez, so obviously that was done out of anger. And you weren't just assaulting men who were, you know, in self-defense necessarily, right? I mean, you know, men who were crossing physical boundaries. I mean, you were assaulting men because they said some crappy things to you, right? Some insulting, sexist things. Well, I mean, yeah, you explain what happened. I honestly think by the time I was, when this began, I was 21, 22, and I had moved to New York from St. Louis because within a few months, two of my lovers and one of my closest friends were all brutally raped. They didn't know each other. It was unrelated. And I moved to New York City after that. And then in New York City, I was sexually assaulted multiple times. I was maimed by a homophobic and sexist gynecologist, um, which I wrote about in the book. And I was 21 and I was living off of the grid in an art gallery. I was often living off of like 20 bucks a day. I was kind of like a frayed wire is how I put it in the book at this point. I felt, I think I, you know, I I have PTSD and I was probably just spinning out in different ways. And I had no patience for men who didn't take no for an answer. And I, when I think back about it now, I'm 37 and I, I didn't realize how young I was then. But I felt like, you know, I'm punk. I had gone from being a pacifist to adamantly not a pacifist. And so it became this thing where if men hit on me once, I would say, no, I'm not interested. Um, I'm, I'm a lesbian. I'm not interested. Even if I were a lesbian, maybe I wouldn't be interested in you. Like, leave me alone. And then if they put their hand on me in any way or sometimes just continued verbally coming on to me, I would whack them in the head with my little like plastic water bottle. It was like that, those soft plastic, like dollar water bottles that you get, or I'd shove them. Um, and in some cases, like there was a man who I, at a party who I said no to several times and who insisted that he was going to walk me home. And at this point, I definitely didn't trust straight men at all. And I didn't want to be walked home with this man who had continued hitting on me, even though I told him no, at night in New York City, I didn't want him walking next to me. And he continued walking beside me. And I just turned around and punched him really hard in the back of the head and ran. If they wouldn't accept my no for an answer, yeah, I began hitting them for about um, a year and a half straight. I hit a lot of men who wouldn't respect the fact that I was saying no. And and yeah, you're right. Some of that might have been considered assault. I guess would have been considered assault because they didn't hit me or touch me first. Yeah. So I used the word assault. <laughs> I, totally. I didn't realize that you, you hadn't used the word assault in your book necessarily. I, oh no, I, but... I did. I said I began assaulting men. Yeah. Okay. And I'm saying, yeah, so this is definitely, it was, it's a pretty extreme reaction. I stopped after about a year and a half, but I think that at that point that felt like my only defense and I'm not saying that it's right or that people should do it, but I'm also, I don't necessarily regret it. I just look back on that and see like, damn, that's how sort of frayed and upset I was. Right. And also why wouldn't you leave someone alone after they ask you to stop pursuing them sexually? Yeah. Yeah. That's so complicated because you wrote that chapter. It followed the chapter about the abuse or the assault from the male OBGYN. 
right? And and mm-hmm. you know, people can read that chapter, but that was pretty brutal. I mean, you were discriminated against, and when you when you revealed to the OBGYN that you were lesbian and he treated you pretty badly, and then you know, kind of was abusive, physically abusive about your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was something. With all of this, I've sort of had to step back in a really radical way. And I know that we tell women this all the time and we try to tell ourselves this and say, there's nothing to be ashamed of when this happens to you. This isn't your fault. That's actually a really difficult thing to do, to sort of detach emotionally and say, this is something that was done to me that wasn't my fault and that I shouldn't feel ashamed of. But yeah, the um, homophobic and sexist OBGYN, I never really talked about that except with close partners before and a couple of close friends. And now it's in the book and I'm talking about it publicly and it, it's, it's, it's an intense thing to talk about, but it's also something I have to step back from and say, look, there's nothing that I have to be ashamed of. This is what a man did to me. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Have you have you been talking? Because the book just so the book isn't out yet, right? It's coming it comes out. out tomorrow. Yeah. How do you feel about that? And I'm asking this for a really specific reason. There was a thread on social media a few weeks ago where someone was warning writers who write memoirs about the level of vulnerability and emotional exposure that you go through when you start to do, you know, these the junkets, right? You start to do the interviews, you start to do the book parties or whatever, and about warning that, you know, you're going to go through a pretty emotional roller coaster. I mean, has that started for you? Are you anticipating going through all of this again? Well, with this book, I think that the writing of it was a big emotional roller coaster. It was actually wasn't healing. It was sort of re-traumatizing. I wrote this book because I think that it's necessary. I wanted to put down on the page what sexism is like in the lived daily experience and see it in the context of a whole woman's life. So I think that's very important. And I've dedicated myself to doing this. But yeah, it's very difficult. Um, I've already started getting threatening messages and really angry messages from men. Mm. Right now it's a steady drip like every month or two because they know this is coming out. I'm getting sort of threatening and very degrading messages from men, some of whom I know, some of whom I don't know online. I expect to be getting more threats, I guess. I hope that doesn't happen. Um, So I'm nervous about it, but I'm also the thought of not writing the book and not saying anything doesn't necessarily make me feel less upset or scared because the truth is all of the things I wrote about in this book, this type of thing continues to happen all the time to me and the women around me, whether or not I write the book, I still have to deal with it. Right. Right. You know, I feel like, you know, just talking about this and what you're going through right now, it hasn't really started, right. You know, the, the, the retaliation. And I hope it stops after the few threatening messages you've gotten. But the thing is, it feels like it's kind of a war in a sense, right? When women tell stories like the ones you've told, it helps other women. Like I know that reading these stories have helped me, and, and so they need to be out there, right? So that we can all connect and, you know, find something in these stories that'll help us. But then, you know, we're also putting ourselves on the line when we do that, putting ourselves at risk for more harassment and more abuse. So I don't know who's going to win that war. <laughs> I'm just so curious. How did you feel like reading this book helped you? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. So for me, I think the thing that, and everybody's going to get something different out of it. You know, and I I have to be honest, I've never been sexually assaulted. I have been sexually harassed. And that was a huge, huge moment in my life. And, you know, we don't have time to talk about that. I have been, you know, sexually harassed. And um, but the thing that stood out for me, I felt like you were searching in a lot of the parts in the book, searching for, you know, what does this mean? Why did this happen to me? For me, I'm a black woman. 
And I felt like I have spent a lot of my life trying to put some of my experiences as a black woman into context and trying to figure out why something happened. Uh Do you know what I mean? Because just like, just like women, you know, women are told, you know, this made me uncomfortable or this person assaulted me, but I'm not really sure how, you know, what words to put around it. The same thing happens with the racism, right? We, we don't Mm -hmm. have clean definitions about what's happening to us and our experiences And I guess the book just helped me realize that other people, other women and other people in marginalized groups spend a lot of our energy just trying to search and find a place to land and a a way to explain what our experiences are. And the thing that I think that's happened to me over the past few years is that I've gained the confidence to say, like, I have enough experience with this. I know it when I see it. I know it when I feel it. I know what sexism feels like. I know what racism feels like. And if somebody tells me that that's not what I'm experiencing, that I should trust my own feelings because I have more experience with it than they do. So that's how the book helped me. Oh, that's that's really nice to hear. Thank you for saying that. <sighs> yeah, yeah, I want. I wasn't actually sure when I was writing it what I expected women to get out of it. This is going to sound strange, but I was in my mind really writing it with men reading it in mind. Because I'm, I don't know if you've come up, you probably come up against this with talking to white people about your experiences of racism. But when I talk to men about sexism, a lot of times I'm questioned and they they say, oh, are you sure that was sexist? Oh, is it really that bad that you can't live with it? Doesn't this happen to everyone on some level? And I think writing this book is my way of saying it is that bad. It is unacceptable. And no, this doesn't happen to everyone. This is what sexism looks like. Yeah. And and yeah, and that was the connection that I made. You know, we're mm-hmm. always questioned. We're always questioned. Are we really experiencing what we're experiencing? And the amount of energy we, we take to take on that question and to not help ourselves heal. Yeah, that's really what I got from it. And don't you feel like sometimes there's also the implication that maybe when you say this is unacceptable, the level of racism or sexism I'm experiencing is unacceptable. And then there's a pushback where it just seems like the retort is no, it's not. It's not unacceptable. It's not that bad. Right, right. Of course. Right. <laughs> because usually the person who's telling you that is participating in the system that's oppressing you. Yes. Right. I mean, so, yeah, so this book is my retort. And to say, well, read this and tell me if you think it's acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, just to read that whole arc of your life and all these stories put together was really, really powerful. Thank you so much. So, so just in closing, what would have helped you at any point in your life you know, kind of avoid, you know, that when you said that there was a point where you were kind of like you had, you know, frayed nerves, what would have helped you most when you were younger? Had someone said something to you or done something to intervene as a young girl, as a young woman? Oh, that's a good question. I think it's a point. It's, it's not just one thing or one person stepping in. It would be if the atmosphere of society had been different, if at every point in this book, And at every point in my life when I encountered sexism, if someone had acknowledged someone, which means many people throughout my life had been there to acknowledge this is sexism and this is unacceptable, that first level of acknowledgement, especially from adults or men and also women around you, anyone around you helps you to contextualize it and not internalize it and not think that this is how you deserve to be treated, that this isn't your fault. And that's one of the reasons that I wrote this book, to hope that people can become more aware of the fact that they are 
behaving along the lines of this socialized structure that tells us that women are very different creatures than men and we should expect to be treated differently than men. I think that what would have helped me is if that weren't some underlying assumption among almost every member of the society that I grew up in. Yeah, I think one of the things that would have helped me is, you know, sometimes when we go to people and we say, hey, this thing is happening to me, hey, you know, I'm being sexually harassed or, hey, you know, I think these racist things are happening to me or I'm being treated unfairly. You go to someone that you think that you can trust. They don't necessarily have to have the power to fix it for you. Right. But the thing that would help is if they were to say, you know what, I believe you and you were not alone. Right. This is happening to millions and thousands of women across the world and across the country. Like just someone to acknowledge that would have been really, really helpful to me. Well, um, Chavisa Woods, thank you so much for writing this book. It's really helpful and I'm sure it will help a lot of women. And just thank you so much for writing it and, and taking time to talk to me today. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this episode and this conversation helpful, please support the electorate by subscribing. Subscribing is free and it's easy. Just click the subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please follow the electorate on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And that's at electorate. Thank you so much again for listening. And until next time, keep up the good fight.